Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. In the last couple of episodes, we've had a look at both the budget and the Defence Strategic Review. So that's probably enough of that for the moment. There's still plenty more to go, but um, with the idea of having a bit of variety, let's have a look at another big topic, namely AUKUS and nuclear-powered submarines, because a few bits and pieces have come out about that recently that are highly relevant. The first thing to say is that we are continuing to battle in a climate of unreasonable secrecy about all of this. No one wants to know precise operational details, but a basic framework would be good to know, particularly as the government keeps on telling us that this is some sort of done deal, which it definitely is not. And we know that because of the Senate estimates process. And Vice Admiral Jonathan Mead gave some testimony which indicated that there are still a lot of obstacles to overcome here. Now, I think I'm going to do a whole separate episode on transparency because it's a big topic. It's one that needs to be fixed. It's debilitating defence. I have a myriad of contrary examples, but I'll just give one. From last year when a few journalists went to Sweden for the 500th anniversary of the Royal Swedish Navy. And the media tour started with a one and a half hour briefing from the chief of the Royal Swedish Navy, who gave a most comprehensive overview of the service, its capabilities in general terms, its roles and responsibilities. She answered questions. Most of them she was able to. Some, for security reasons, had to be declined. But it was very worthwhile. The visit concluded with the head of the submarine flotilla, who came in to see us on what had originally been his day off because he was celebrating his wedding anniversary. And he was also as open as he could be, talking about the concept of Swedish submarine operations, their roles, future projects coming up, the future of underwater warfare, all of that sort of stuff. Of course, the Swedes are living in, and have been for some time, a very high threat environment. So they know all about operational security, and yet they were prepared to give up huge amounts of time. They saw it as part of their job to explain to journalists, to the outside world, what it is that they were doing. Now, contrast that with Australia. In the 80s and 90s, the heads of various services used to see it as part of their job. Whether it was part of the job description or not, they saw it as part of their role to keep the general public informed about what was happening in defence. They had a good working relationship with the media. We'd see them quite regularly. Contrast this today where people would, in many cases, literally run and hide rather than speak with a journalist. Anyway, now to the substance of this. Let's have a look at a summary of uh, what Vice Admiral Meade told Senate Estimates. First of all, he can't say whether the Virginia-class submarines that Australia will receive are Block 3 or Block 4. He can't indicate the cost, and he can't indicate whether the acquisition strategy is going to be via the US foreign military sales system or whether it's going to be some other mechanism. If I've got time at the end of this, I'll describe a great FMS ripoff, one of many where Australia missed out. So 
If anyone thinks that the FMS system is doing us favours, you're going to have to think again. Back to what we do know. And as I've indicated, this is already a long way from the official government position that this is all certain, that it's on rails, that it's going to happen. Okay, Vice Admiral Meade confirmed that if we receive three Virginia-class submarines, probably two second-hand and one new one, that means that we will only require five AUKUS submarines, not the eight that have been previously referred to, because that, quite simply, the total pool of nuclear-powered submarines, according to Navy planning at the moment, will be eight. So logically, if we've got three Virginias, we only need five of the AUKUS ones, which I remind you are to be designed at some future point in conjunction with the United Kingdom. But if that program is delayed, and this is my interpretation now, that means that Australia is on track to buy more Virginia-class submarines, up to five is the number mentioned. And that means logically, if the number of submarines remains fixed at eight, that means that Australia will be building a mere three future AUKUS submarines. And you have to ask the obvious question. Does building a mere three submarines justify the huge cost of building infrastructure in Australia and everything that goes with it? Or will the argument simply be, well, hey, look, there's an existing production line in the UK. We've got these uh, these Virginia-class submarines, the newer ones of which are going to continue operating into the 2060s and 2070s, potentially. Why bother building a mere three of them here in Australia? So that hasn't been discussed, but I think it's something that everyone needs to be aware of. So again, all of these promises about 20,000 jobs in Adelaide and some fantastic new industry, from what we know at this stage, I simply don't believe it. Meanwhile, the first of the Collins submarines goes out of service in 2026 for the life for its life extension program for a minimum of two years. But given the complexity of submarine overhauls, something that I've had some exposure to, it's going to be probably longer than that. And when you look at uh, the normal pattern of submarines being serviced and training exercises and things like that, the available number of subs that we will have will be two, maybe three, maybe one. It's a pretty bleak outlook. Now, even before the first of the Virginia classes arrived, the US has already achieved one of its major objectives in this, in drawing Australia even closer to the strategic relationship that Australia and the US has. This is through the rotational deployment of submarines, both from the UK and the US, that will start to occur via HMAS Stirling in Western Australia from 2027 onwards. Think about it for a moment. There's a bit of a contradiction here. One of the big selling points, two of the big selling points of nuclear-powered submarines is their virtually unlimited range and their very great endurance. The US already has four submarines based at um, Guam. The UK has access to facilities on Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean. There's actually no practical reason why HMAS Sterling is adding anything at all to the equation. At best, because of the ability to take on some extra food, 
it might add an extra one or two days to a 70-day patrol. But so what? So Australia is going to all of this trouble and effort. It will actually make no practical difference to submarine operations, but further locks us into the AUKUS agreement so that the US and the UK and Australia are viewed as some sort of indivisible mass. And again, I'm not sure that that's in the national interest. It certainly hasn't been debated to any great extent. Let's have a look at the practicalities of the Virginia class program. And this is something that I've touched on before. Uh, At the moment, according to the GAO, it's about two years late. And the current rate of construction, that's a bit debatable. It depends on who you speak to and it depends on when you look at the window of build because the US financial year runs from the 1st of October to the 30th of September, all of that sort of stuff. It's at about 1.5 per year. To have excess submarine capacity, the US has to get to over two per year. Their first priority is the Columbia class SSBN. They've also got the Virginia class replacement, their SSNX program, not too far away. And there are also some specialized versions of the Virginia class that also have to be squeezed into all of this. So the point at which the US will actually be producing more submarines than it needs, if it's going to happen at all, I continue to have my doubts uh, about that. It's going to be sometime like in the, potentially in the mid to late 2030s. You then have to ask, uh, Australia is voluntarily transferring 2.5 billion to the US to subsidise their shipbuilding industry and an extra $500 million to the UK to subsidise their shipbuilding industry. What is Australia getting for this? Nothing as far as I'm aware. And again, defence to date and the government have just not been prepared to provide any basis for that whatsoever. So let's look at the basic rationale. It would only make sense for the US to transfer Virginia-class submarines to Australia if the US was convinced that the practical effect was pretty much the same as leaving them in USN service. There's no point transferring assets to Australia that diminish their own capacity. History suggests that the US has a pretty valid reason for thinking that way reasons, because Australia has acted in lockstep. And here, I'm going to tell, reveal the details of a conversation with a retired US Admiral in 2015. It was horrifying then, and it's just as horrifying now. Now, this occurred with a couple of other journalists. It's not me just making it up. It was a conversation that didn't occur in Australia. I'm not going to identify this guy's final position, because you'll be able to quickly work out who it was, and I still have to be a little bit cautious about the topic, and I certainly don't want to generate unintended offence. Anyway, at a fairly late point in quite a convivial dinner when we were talking about Australia's future submarine needs, the capacity of the United States and all the rest of it, he was feeling pretty relaxed. And by the way, there was no alcohol involved. Well, not for him, it was for us, but for him, he just stuck with his, his mineral water. And at a certain point when he was relaxed enough, he said, turning to us, he said, look, in Washington, what we really love about you Aussies, we don't even need to give you an excuse. 
with everyone else, with the Canadians, with the British, we've got to give them a reason why they should come into a conflict alongside us. With you, it doesn't matter. We know that no matter what, you're just going to be there. As I say, I was horrified then. This the, He was a very well-meaning fellow. He obviously meant this as a great compliment. I took it the other way, and I would imagine that most listeners would see it in the way that I did as well. What sort of reputation do we have in the corridors of power in Washington that senior people believe that they don't even need to give us an excuse, that they can count on us no matter what? It was like they see us as sort of mildly retarded children who have to be encouraged and jollied along and given a bit of assistance, but no matter what they do, no matter what conflict they're involved in, we're going to be there. Let's consider for a moment that the US is involved in a conflict and that there is some pushback, as unlikely as that is from the government of the day. And the US president picks up the phone to the Australian prime minister and says, listen, we want your submarines, your nuclear powered submarines that we have supplied to you to be under the command of the United States because you're either with us or against us on this, and your Navy has assured us that we will do what you say. If the Australian Prime Minister pushed back and said, well, hang on, the Navy doesn't speak for the government, it's the government that decides, and we're really not sure that this is in the national interest. Can you imagine what the next step would be? The President would say, okay, let me tell you exactly what's going to happen if you continue to sit on the fence. First of all, AUKUS is going to be scrapped straight away. So within one or two years, your submarines, your nuclear-powered submarines will be just completely useless because we're not going to provide any spare parts for them. We're not going to provide any technical assistance. Any American citizens who are crewing them are coming back home. Secondly, with your Aegis systems on surface ships, same formula. There'll be no support. There'll be no software upgrades, no nothing. Your F-35s, Forget about those as well. They might fly for a year or two and still be effective, but in the longer term, they'll be sitting on the on the tarmac. Missiles, no resupply, because guess what? You're being too stupid and too lazy to develop your own sources of supply over the last 30 years, and so now you're going to pay the consequences of that. But let me go on. The free trade agreement that we have, scrapped. The Australian banking system, sanctioned. The ALP will be declared a terrorist organization, and I'm going to personally sanction you and every member of your family. I'm going to personally sanction every cabinet minister and every member of their families. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take the Australian economy back to the 1920s and leave your military so weak and vulnerable that you could be conquered by Thailand. So what do you have to say about that? Now, clearly, any Australian prime minister put in that position would just buckle instantly. I'm now going to conclude with uh, the FMS case study that I mentioned. It probably deserves a bit more time than this, but uh, with an eye on the clock. This is the C27J purchase in 2012. There's no real competition. The CN295 from Airbus was there, but the RAF made it clear that they wanted the C27J. Okay, an order for 10 aircraft. Australia decided to go down the FMS system. The raw aircraft from Leonardo in Turin were about $30 million a copy. 
They were ferried to Waco in Texas for L3 Harris to then charge an extra $60 million per aircraft to fit some specific radios and cryptographic gear and some electronic warfare self-protection. That's an extraordinary amount of money. And guess why it happened? Because the prime contractor, L3 Harris, told the Air Force that it would be uneconomic to do the work in Australia. I mean, good for L3 Harris. They got a big chunk of business in the United States. No one actually did a sanity check. At the same time, when Airbus found out what was going on, they offered 10 aircraft, their C295s, modified in Australia, plus for free a KC-30A tanker transport aircraft. Raytheon Australia offered to buy the 10 aircraft from Leonardo in Turin, bring them to Australia and do the work here for a firm fixed price contract of $500 million. Both offers were ignored. So thanks to FMS, the FMS system, and the slavish devotion that our defence system has to it, we either paid $400 million more than necessary with zero Australian content, that's referring to the Raytheon offer, or deprived ourselves of a whole lot of Australian content and an extra KC-30A. It actually gets even worse than that because even Leonardo were not happy because the United States bought the aircraft as part of a bulk order of about 100 they were planning to buy, but they cancelled their order with Leonardo. They decided they didn't really want C-27Js leaving Australia as kind of an orphan operator. So again, we forked out unnecessarily hundreds of millions of dollars to actually not do work in Australia. There are plenty of other examples. I think next week, rather than doing transparency, because as I say, I might wait for a quiet time to do that one, we might have a look at the Hunter Class Frigate Program, which has also been discussed a lot in Senate estimates. Bye for now. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.